I'd like you to turn to the uh, book of 1 Kings, starting a new series of studies in Kings. Um, so, if you're not sure where it is, uh, if you find the Psalms, uh, go back a couple of books, two or three books, uh, you'll find 1 Kings. And... Uh, Uh, it's a long one. It's uh, 53 verses, so uh, get ready. Uh, but before we read, let's once again bow our heads in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we pray that you would help us in our meditations and the words of my mouth, that uh, all that we study together will be of benefit to us for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. So let's... Let's read the whole chapter, and uh, I entitled the sermon, who's in, uh, the title is, Who's in Charge Around Here? Because there's a bit of doubt at the beginning, who's in charge? <laughs> so, uh, but we'll see how that's resolved um, as we get to the end of first chapter. But let's hear what uh, uh, One Kings tells us. Now, King David was old and advanced in years, and although they covered him with clothes, he couldn't get warm. Therefore his servant said to him, Let a young woman be sought for my lord the king, and let her wait on the king, and be in his service. Let her lie in your arms, that my lord the king may be warm. So they sought for a beautiful young woman throughout all the territory of Israel, and found Abishag the Shunammite, and brought her to the king. The young woman was very beautiful, and she was of service to the king, and attended to him. But the king knew her not, which, if you know your Hebrew... That's a euphemism for sexual relations. He knew her not. Verse 5. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, uh, who is one of David's uh, wives. Come to that later. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father never had... Uh, at any time displeased him by asking, what have you, why have you done thus and so? He was also very handsome, a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Ray, and David's mighty men, were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened cattle by the serpent stone, which is beside Enrogel. And he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the royal officials of Judah, but he did not invite Nathan the prophet, or Benaiah, or the mighty men, or Solomon, his brother. Then Nathan... Nathan's a prophet, said to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and David our Lord does not know it? Now therefore come, let me give you advice, that you may save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go in at once to King David and say to him, Did you not, my lord, the king, swear to your servant, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then is Adonijah king? 
Then, while you're speaking with the king, I also will come in after you and confirm your words. So Bathsheba went to the king in his chamber. Now the king was very old, and Abishag the Shunammite was attending to the king. Bathsheba bowed and paid homage to the king, and the king said, What do you desire? And she said to him, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. And now, behold, Adonijah is king, although you, my lord, the king, do not know it. He has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the sons of the king, Abiathar the priest, and Joab the commander of the army. But Solomon, your servant, he has not invited. Now, my lord, the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to tell them who shall sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him. Otherwise, it will come to pass when my lord, the king, sleeps with his fathers, that I and my son Solomon will be counted offenders. While she was still speaking with the king, Nathan the prophet came in. And they told the king, here is Nathan the prophet. And when he came in before the king, he bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Nathan said, my lord the king, have you said Adonijah shall reign after me? And he shall sit in my throne. For he has gone down this day and has sacrificed oxen, fattened cattle, and sheep in abundance, and has invited all the king's sons and commanders of the army, and Abiathar the priest, and behold, they are eating and drinking before him, and saying, Long live King Adonijah! But me, your servant, and Zadok the priest, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and your servant Solomon, he has not invited. Has this thing been brought about by, by my lord the king? And you have not told your servants who should sit on the throne of my lord, the king, after him? Then King King David answered, Call Bathsheba to me. So she came into the king's presence and stood before the king. And the king swore, saying, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my soul out of every adversity, as I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son shall reign after me, and he shall sit in my throne. In my place, on the throne in my place. Even so, I will do this day. Then Bathsheba bowed with her face to the ground and paid homage to the king and said, May my lord, King David, live forever. King David said, Call to me Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada. So they came before the king. And the king said to them, Take with you the servants of your Lord and have Solomon my son ride on my mule and bring him down to Gihon and let Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet there anoint him king over Israel and then blow the trumpet and say, Long live King Solomon! You shall then come up after him and he shall come and sit on my throne for he shall be king in my place and I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and over Judah. And Benaiah the son of Jehoiada answered the king, Amen. May the Lord, the God of my Lord, the King, say so. As the Lord has been with my Lord, the King, even so may he be with Solomon and make his throne greater than the throne of my Lord, King David. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and made Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. And they blew the trumpet and all the people said, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. 
Adonijah, and all the guests who were with him heard it as they finished feasting. And when Joab heard the sound of the trumpet, he said, What does this uproar in the city mean? While he was still speaking, behold, Jonathan, the son of Abiathar the priest, came. And Adonijah says, Come in, for you are a worthy man, and bring good news. Jonathan answered Adonijah, No, for our Lord King David has made Solomon king. And the king has sent him Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And they made him ride on the king's mule. And Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet have anointed him king at Gihon. And they have gone up from there rejoicing so that the city is in an uproar. This is the noise that you have heard. Solomon sits on the royal throne. Moreover, the king's servants came to congratulate our Lord King David, saying, May your God make the name of Solomon more famous than yours and make his throne greater than your throne. And the king bowed himself on the bed, and the king also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who has granted someone to sit on my throne this day, my own eyes seeing it. Then all the guests of Adonijah trembled and rose, and each went on his own way. And Adonijah feared Solomon, and he arose and went and took hold of the horns of the altar. Then it was told Solomon, Behold, Adonijah fears King Solomon, for behold, he has laid hold of the horns of the altar, saying, Let King Solomon swear to me first that he will not put his servant to death with the sword. And Solomon said, If If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hairs shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. So King Solomon sent, and they brought him down from the altar, And he came and paid homage to King Solomon. And Solomon said to him, go to your house. Oh, interesting story. Um, I wonder if that kind of thing happened in Russia just over the weekend. Anyway, that's another story. (laughs) Now, so the book of Kings... Um, these, these books are books that you put into the, generally we put into the category of historical narrative in the Bible. You know, the Bible's made up of different kinds of literature. And uh, this is historical narrative. And it, it starts towards the end of David's life and carries on telling the story of the kingdom, kingdoms of, of Judah and Israel. Um, till about 400 years later when eventually Babylon overruns the kingdom. So this is a story of 400 years, many kings that uh, have gone by. It's only 22 chapters. Somebody's counted 50,000 words or so uh, covering 400 years. Uh, So clearly this is not an exhaustive history of the, the, the kingdom of Israel and Judah. In fact, one could say that it's an extremely selective history. Uh, Certain events are chosen as stories for us to learn from. And in fact, one could say that they are divinely chosen stories for subsequent generations to learn from. And actually, because it is so selective and it has a divine origin, if you like, it's God speaking about how he unfolds history that 
for this reason, uh, certainly in the Jewish Bible, the books of, of Samuel and Kings were put into the category of prophets because it speaks of uh, a prophetic word to the people of Israel at different times. Um, so it's not simply an account of events, but they do give a divine interpretation of history. And that, for that reason, we need to pay attention to it. Uh, God wants us to know uh, certain things from this. So we come to, to chapter 1 today. We're going to spend a few weeks looking at this. Um, I, I don't know how long this series is going to go for, but we'll, we'll press on to an appropriate point, probably chapter 11. And we'll take a break and do something else and then come back to it afterwards. But we begin in chapter 1. And here at this point, King David is an old man. Um, and, you know, as you get older, you can you maybe imagine this, and maybe you've seen this in your family. As members of your family get older, uh, you become, it just seems to happen this, isn't it? You get more and more preoccupied with your health and your condition and whether you're warm enough and whether things are looked after for you. And, uh, you know, just talk to your grandmother <laughs> and you'll discover this, uh, your grandfather. Um, that uh, your health or lack of it and your infirmity becomes more and more an issue that you begin to be preoccupied with. And like many old people, David at this point is, is concerned about how cold he is. It's, so simp- it's such a kind of human thing, isn't it? He's cold. Um, and, um, and so they, they take steps to, to help him with that. It sounds a bit strange to us that a beautiful young woman is set aside uh, to, uh, to actually sleep in the same bed so that he can get warm. It sounds very strange to us, not recommended. Uh, but uh, just to, so there's absolute clarity here, uh, verse 4 says, uh, but the king knew her not. So there's nothing untoward going on here, um, but they were just trying to keep the king warm. Um, the why you need a, a very beautiful woman, the most beautiful woman in Israel to do that, I don't know. Maybe it's just because he's the king. Um, who knows? However, when you, when you have a king in this state you know, of, of uh, let's say, it, decrepitude, he's an old man, and he's in this state, um, that can create a degree of instability in the kingdom. Um, and that's true here with David and his family. And you may remember, you know, if you've read 1 and 2 Samuel, you will, and we certainly preached on it quite a number of years ago now. I, I preached through it. 1 and 2 Samuel a few years ago. And one of the things you notice, and you kind of park it in your mind, is David kind of collects wives along the way. Again, not recommended. The Bible's not advocating it, polygamy. But it is observing that you know, sinners do these kind of things. And David collects a number of, of wives uh, along the way. And, uh, and with wives come children. And particularly, uh, sons come. Uh, you know, if you're the king, then you're particularly interested in your sons because your sons will not probably follow um, as on the throne. And if you have a, a collection of sons with different mothers, you can see how there would be a potential for conflict and competition between the sons. Who's going to rule on David's throne when he dies? Uh, 
People start thinking about things like that. When he dies, who is going to sit on the throne? And so this potential for conflict grows as David is approaching his final years, final days. And so Adonijah, who, as it turns out, is the, the oldest living son of Hagith, um, of all his, all his sons, says in verse 5, I will be king. I'll be king. It's me. Um, he exalted himself. I'm going to be king. Goes, starts going around telling people that he is going to be king. And he's got friends. He's got Joab, who if you read in 2 Samuel, you realize he's a bit of a bruiser, of a commander of, the, of uh, David's army, um, of dodgy kind of morals. Um, and uh, he's got Abishai, the, uh, Abishai the priest, and various others. And, and with them, he declares himself to, to be king, succeeding David. So he takes advantage of David's weakness, and he declares himself to be king, and he's got support for it. Um, and he thinks he can do that because, well, David, to his knowledge, has not declared a successor, um, and he has a right to the, to the throne. And so he seizes the opportunity. It's a kind of a coup that he takes the throne, or attempts to take the throne from David. However, there's another group of people, uh, Zadok the priest, and Nathan the prophet, and some others, And Nathan remembers that David had promised Bathsheba that her son Solomon shall be king after him. And so Nathan warns David and tells him about how Adonijah has attempted to usurp the throne. And David, in verse 28, is spurred into action. So he moves from being a kind of sad old man in a bed, worrying about his health, to suddenly... Suddenly he's a man of action. And he starts giving commands and instructions about how Solomon is to be crowned as king and anointed. And so these men do as as David commands. um, And uh, the the Cherethites and the Pelagites are two big clans that uh, give a power base, if you like, for Solomon, uh, protecting him. And then, in the, so, so the, 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 the crowning of Solomon happens. And in the last few verses, we find that Adonijah, who all this time has been celebrating with his friends, you know, he's, <laughs> we've done it, guys. Uh, let's have a party. Uh, let's have a, a good time. And uh, he hears about the, the uproar that's going on. Job hears the uproar, and uh, news comes that Solomon has been crowned king with all the authority of the king. And suddenly there's fear amongst Adonijah and his pals. And they suddenly disperse. And uh, essentially Adonijah ends up pleading for his life at the altar. And in return for his life, Adonijah pledges allegiance and pays homage to Solomon. And at that point the coup is over. So fascinating story. Uh, What can we learn from all this palace intrigue? Uh, Four things, uh, I think the passage divides into four sections, and so four things to to consider with you. First of all, the kingdom regularly faces threats. The kingdom of God regularly faces threats. Adonijah is an interesting character. He's 
He has a number of features that mark him out um, as a, a good candidate for king. Firstly, he's got ambition. He says, I will be king. He's a man who knows what he wants and where he wants to be. He has a certain style about him. Um, you know, he gets chariots and, um, and horsemen to, to go with him. Uh, he gets, and 50 men to run in front of him. That's what a strange thing. You know, you know how important somebody is if you've got 50 men running in front of you. And uh, you're riding on your chariots and uh, there's a great procession in front of you. you th- and everybody says, what's going on here? Uh, there's something happening here. Somebody important's in town. And Adonijah knows how to, to put on this kind of style of uh, a display as pomp and ceremony to display his, his credentials. And, um, you know, people do this all the time, don't they? You, you know, international leaders always appear like this. Uh, you, you know, the leader of a country is walking in the middle and behind, beside him are, are all his closest advisors and everything. And then behind them is all, all the civil servants behind, walking behind, walking into this great conference or whatever it is. And uh, you can tell the importance of somebody by the size of the entourage that's with the person and the motorcade that they arrive with. You know, who's got the biggest motorcade in the world? Well, probably the President of the United States. Everybody says that's the most important person in the world at the moment. You know, the leader of the free world and all that sort of thing. And, um, and he arrives in his own plane and all this sort of thing. You can tell, you know, somebody's important with all of this kind of thing. And um, Adonijah creates this style around him. Um, he's also, he's got image. You know, he's a very handsome man. A very good looking man. He's the kind of man that when he walks into a room, everybody says, ooh, who's that? That's interesting. <laughs> and uh, he attracts attention. He's, the, the word is literally, he is fair to the eyes. He's um, an attractive man. And, um, and then he is next in line to the throne. So um, he, is, uh, he was born next after Absalom, verse 6. Now Absalom uh, is dead at this point. So Absalom died in two kings. Abs- Absalom was kind of like Adonijah. He had this style about him. He, had his, he was a tall man, a handsome man. Um, and he sought to usurp the, the, the throne of David uh, long before. But in the end, he came to a sticky end. He died. And so Adonijah now is uh, the next in line to the throne. And he's, of course, got support. He's got support from important people, um, which is listed in verses 7 to 9. Now, put that all together. Do you think Adonijah is a good candidate to be king? I think most people would say, yeah, he is. He looks the part. He's got the style. Uh, he's he's yeah, got the appearance. Uh, he's a man that people could follow. And um, he looks like he's got all the credentials. Well, not so fast. So there's a few signals here that there's a, there's a potential problem here. One is he exalts himself. So this comes from a, a selfish ambition. And then when you realize that, you, you, you also begin to fit it into a pattern that's gone before in the scripture where there have been men who, who have been similarly well qualified and yet have come a cropper. So think of Saul, King Saul, the first king. Bit of a disaster. Uh, because he, he thought he knew better than God 
and he ignored God's commands and did his own thing, God rejected him. Or think of, um, you know, just before David was chosen to be, uh, to be king, Samuel the prophet comes to Jesse uh, to, to search out his sons. And all, all the sons are kind of tall, handsome men. Eliab is first of all. And, and he looks the part, you see. He looks like a potential king. And, uh, and God says, God looks at the, doesn't look on the, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. God has a different plan. And so eventually after they've gone through all the brothers who all all are eminently qualified, the Lord says, go and get the other son. Samuel tells Jesse to get him and David comes. He's a a young boy at this point um, and doesn't look like a king material. But this is the one that the Lord has chosen. Um, Or think about Absalom. We just mentioned a minute ago. Another handsome man, yet he conspired against David uh, and met an untimely death. So there's a, there's a string of men who look the part but are actually not qualified to be king. They don't fit in with God's purposes. And these, these kind of stories serve as a warning to us um, as we read them. Because we should, we should say to ourselves, let's just wait and see what happens here. What happens? Um, because it might indicate that the kingdom, if left in this state, is not going to be in good hands. That something disastrous is going to happen. And I think there are lessons here for us in the kingdom of God today. Um, one is simply that um, you know, the kingdom of God frequently faces trials and difficulties and problems, moments of danger. That's always been true. Especially when there's a transition of leadership um, or something uh, happens. And the thing is, we should expect that that should be the normal part of uh, life in the kingdom of God. That where there's transition, there's always going to be uncertainty and difficulty. Um, and it's, it's all part of the normal progress of the kingdom of God. Uh, many, many a church has been thrust into crisis because, uh, because they've had a minister for many years uh, who's been in post. And maybe suddenly he's taken ill or he dies or he just wants to retire. And suddenly he's out of the picture and suddenly everybody's in crisis. And we think this is a disaster. But we always need to remember that God's kingdom, the kingdom is God's kingdom. It's not our kingdom. That his hand is upon his people from the beginning. And through all the crises, we learn not to trust our leaders so much as to trust in God and trust in his eternal king, Jesus Christ, who will not vacate the throne. So we trust in him. Another lesson from this uh, first 10 verses is that we need to be careful how we choose our leaders. Um, it's easy to be impressed with appearance. Does somebody look the part? It doesn't necessarily have to be physical appearance, but we could look at other external factors in church leadership, in a minister or an elder. 
And, you know, this is an issue for us as a presbytery. We, as a, as a denomination, spread across the country. How do we uh, decide whether men are actually qualified for ministry? And it would be easy just to look at external factors. Like, is the person, has the person got a gift? You know, maybe a preaching gift or a, a, a conversational gift or, or something uh, that makes them seem like, you know, a nice man and all this sort of thing. Uh, it's good to be a nice man in the ministry. But... Um, you know, it's not just about the externals. It's not just about these external giftings that, that people have. Nor is it, um, is it simply about the doctrine that they hold. You, know, you could test the doctrine that they hold to. Do they hold to Westminster Confession of Faith, as they should? Um, or are there deviations from it? What, what, what is their doctrine? And we could check all these things. But in a sense, that's an external thing. You can, you can claim, say that you believe all these things. You be, could be able to articulate all of these things accurately. But the thing that's missing is the state of the heart. Is this man actually holy? Is he holy in his heart? Is he utterly devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he committed to him and willing to, uh, uh, to, to live for him and, to, and if necessary, suffer for him? Um, is there a robust devotion to God and submission to him? So the kingdom faces threats and sometimes we can be uh, taken in by external factors uh, in when we should be thinking about the heart and the nature of the heart. Secondly, here's the second thing. So this is looking at verses 11 to 27, uh, that faithfulness matters. Faithfulness matters. Here's, uh, into the picture comes Nathan the prophet. Now Nathan has been in, in the story of David for um, uh, way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and, um, and beyond. And uh, you may remember that uh, Nathan was a prophet that exposed David's sin. Remember David, um, you know, he's, he's up on top of his palace and he looks out and he sees Bathsheba bathing. He thinks, yeah, I fancy her. I'm going to have her. And he's the king after all, so he's going to argue. And he goes and takes, his, takes Bathsheba and through one thing and another. Um, he gets her pregnant and Solomon is the, the result of that. But Nathan is the one who comes with a word from God about it and calls him to repentance. And um, And David, in full repentance, pens Psalm 51, you know, where he confesses his sin to the Lord. You know, all his sins. You know my sins. Against you have I sinned and done evil in your sight, and so on. Um, so Nathan is, is this kind of key figure in David's life. And David clearly at some point has sworn to Bathsheba, that Solomon shall be king after him. Uh, Bathsheba knows this, uh, and Nathan knows this. So you look at verse 17. So Bathsheba says to the king, My lord, you swore to your servant by the Lord your God, saying, Solomon, your son, shall shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne. Um, And Nathan, therefore, comes to Bathsheba and sounds the alarm that Adonijah is taking up uh, planning to take the throne for himself. And so together, Nathan and Bathsheba, they put this plan together to get David to act. Um, and that's spelled out in verses 15 through to 27. And what happens, you see, what happens here depends crucially on Nathan and being faithful 
to what God has established. Uh, Nathan has to, as a godly prophet, and he has to take the necessary action. So in one sense, everything hinges on Nathan. Humanly speaking, without Nathan, Adonijah would have been king and biblical history would have been totally different if it was just down to human beings. So what's the lesson that we learn from this? Now, it's not that everybody, as one commentator says, not everybody can be a Nathan. Uh, and we're not, you know, that's not the message, actually, to, for everybody to try and be like Nathan. But what it does highlight for us is the importance of the people of God being willing to be faithful in the purpose of God and doing the things that they know God has called them to do. The importance of ordinary Christian people being faithful in the things that God has called them to do. Whatever, wherever, wherever God has placed you, whatever giftedness God has given you, he calls you to be faithful. And it's great to have this uh, attitude of service to God that sometimes will maybe will put us in a place of great danger or, of, and, or give us a position of monumental importance for the church. Or, or most of the time it won't, but it doesn't matter. Faithfulness is what matters here. God wants his people to be faithful wherever they are and whatever they've been called to do. You may, may not see the importance of doing God's will. You may think it's not that important what you've been called to do. But actually God sees it. God knows it. And he uses it. Your faithfulness in small things as well as great things. God cares that you and I are faithful. Uh, Ralph Davis in his commentary uh, says this, Surely a Lord who remembers cups of water handed to his people does not think lightly of our faithfulness, major or minor. A cup of water is, is good service, faithful service to God's people. So be faithful. Faithfulness matters. Thirdly, God works through zealous people. Now, one of the things that's um, striking from verse 28, and I alluded to it a moment ago, is, is that David, you notice a change in David from this cold, decrepit man lying in a bed trying to keep warm, to suddenly he's a man of action, giving instructions everywhere to bring about what he knows God wants to do with Solomon. And he's suddenly this, this man of action that's been uh, almost come out of nowhere. And suddenly the, it seems to be like the, the faithfulness of Nathan and Bathsheba seems to have energized him to do what he should do as king. And so he gives these detailed orders uh, to them how to anoint and install Solomon as king. And they go about it and they do it. Now, it's worth remembering that Nathan's role, uh, what, what was Nathan's role in the past? We looked at his role in the sin against uh, Bathsheba and, and her then husband. But if you go back a bit further to 2 Samuel chapter 7, before that sin, uh, you may remember that David has reached the pinnacle of his career, if you like, as king. And he wants to build a temple for the Ark of the Covenant that's resting in a tent somewhere. And he wants to build a temple instead, a place worthy of the Lord. 
And the Lord comes to him and says, no, you're not going to do that. But I'm going to build your house. You're not going to build a house for me, but I'm going to build your house. Now, he's not talking about a palace. He's talking about the line of succession to Samuel 7. And, of course, we know that to be ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who's going to sit on the throne of David. Um, And meantime, uh, he is going to preserve the line of succession from David. And, And that line of succession is going through Solomon, not through Adonijah. And so David, remembering this promise, I think, and knowing it's coming from Nathan, is spurred into action. He remembers the promise of God and he begins to do what he should do as king. And so Solomon is crowned as he should have been. Now it's worth just reflecting on this in our Christian lives today. I have a, I have a suspicion that uh, for some of us, um, there's a way of thinking about the promises of God that leads to our passivity. You know, we say, well, God has promised it, and therefore I don't really have to do anything. And so, you know, I just let God do it, and, uh, you know, I just do what I like, and God will do, do what he likes, and he'll do it. Because he says he's going to do it, and he's all-powerful, and so we'll just let him do it. There's a certain passivity can come in if you get the wrong idea about God's promises. But you see, in the Bible, the, the, the picture that's constantly painted for us is that the promises of God, when they are received and believed, they always have the effect on the believer that the believer says, Lord, what would you have me do here? This is the way God works. He gives you the promises and he works into you that motivation and says, Lord, what would you have me do at this point? And so, friends, as you think about the kingdom of God and about the visible local expression of it here in this church in Solihull, knowing its state and knowing the promise of Jesus Christ to build the church, are you not moved to say, Lord, what would you have me do as part of that building of the church? What part are you going to play in this? It may simply be that you pray. You get on your knees and you pray for the, the advancement of the kingdom here in Solihull. It may simply be that as a parent, you, you devote yourself to teaching your children the ways of the Lord. You don't abandon them, but you teach them as the Lord commands you. And that's faithfulness, believing the promises of God. But maybe there are other things that you can do for which you are gifted and well-placed to help with. Lord, what would you have me to do? Now that's not to say that the fate of the kingdom of God depends on us. It doesn't. This is one of the interesting things about this passage. Where's God in this? What did God do in this passage? Have you noticed? Nothing is recorded of what God does. The only time that the Lord is mentioned is on the lips of human beings. On the lips of David. It's almost like God is absent. He seems to be absent. But that should teach us something about our day to day. That the vast majority of the time, 
God does not act in miraculous, supernatural ways intervening in human history. Actually, most of the time, he is at work in the lives of his faithful people, causing them to remember what he has promised and then to act with renewed desire and vigor to carry out what God wants them to do. And behind all of that activity is God himself. It is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure. Philippians chapter 2 somewhere. <laughs> 11 and 12. Philippians 2, 11 and 12. And God is at work constantly in his church doing this kind of work. Quiet work in the hearts of people motivating them to do what he wants them to do. Friends, we must never believe that God is not active just because there are, uh, because there are no miraculous or supernatural events in our lives. He has it all under control, including the hearts of his faithful people. Well, finally, as we come to the end, uh, verses 41 to 55, we see Adonijah submitting to the new king, uh, Solomon. Uh, while all this is happening and the Solomon is being uh, crowned, Adonijah has been with his friends, having a party, having a feast, having a good time, celebrating what he thinks has been his coronation. But then they hear uproar in the city and all the sound of the trumpets and they wonder what it is. And then Jonathan, the son of Abiathar, comes and explains to Adonijah that Solomon has been crowned after all with the authority of the king. And at this point, fear grips Adonijah and his friends because it becomes clear. Now, why does he do that? Why is he fearful? Because when it becomes clear that Adonijah, when it becomes clear to others that Adonijah has had this ambition to take the throne, it means that he will remain as a threat to the new king because he's full of ambition. And under, under any normal circumstances at that time, such threats would be eliminated. Threats to the throne would be eliminated. This is what happens when you get these extreme hierarchies of power, is the person at the top has to eliminate all the competition to make it safe for him. And uh, he would be put to death, Adonijah. So he runs for his life. He goes to the altar at the tabernacle and holds onto it and pleads for his life. And Solomon is lenient. He, he offers him a way out. So you look at verse 52. Solomon says, If he will show himself a worthy man, not one of his hair shall fall to the earth. But if wickedness is found in him, he shall die. In other words, if Adonijah will use all his powers and faculties to serve the king, he shall not die. I guess it's possible that anybody, anybody in that situation will say anything to survive. Yes, 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 king, I, I, I pay homage to you. But in his heart of hearts, he might still have that ambition. We don't know if that's what's actually going on here. But as we think about that situation, and Adonijah pleading for his life, and Solomon showing leniency... The situation in the kingdom of God generally is not actually that very that different. 
One of the things that happens to someone who comes face to face with King Jesus is they begin to be aware of their own sinfulness. And the great eternal danger that they are in. You just need to read Psalm 2 to see why that is. That the nations rail against God. And God, in a sense, kind of laughs and says, what a puny bunch you are. And he calls people to come and submit and kiss the son, lest he be angry. And this is what the gospel call is. You realize, when you come face to face with King Jesus, you realize that all your life you have tried to usurp the throne that rightly belongs to Jesus Christ in your own life. You want to usurp the throne that belongs to him. You want to rule your own life when in fact Jesus has the right to rule you. And it's in, when you come face to face with him, you then have that strong sense of fear about your eternal destiny. As it were, all your pretensions have been found out. And you feel that your life is ultimately, and your fate is ultimately in his hands. That's what happens when somebody becomes a Christian. And King Jesus says to you, commit yourself to me, receive mercy. God the Father says, come kiss the son, lest he be angry. Love him. And live. This is good news. The good news of the gospel. There's a way out. There's judgment. But there's always, with judgment, there's always a way out. There's always a way to have the judgment removed. Kiss the son, lest he be angry. Come to him and love him. And I guess you could do that as, a, as somebody who proclaims to become a Christian. And you can pretend that you have paid homage to Jesus, King Jesus. And you could say to him, yes, I give myself wholeheartedly to you. But in your heart of hearts, you're not really there. Well, Jesus will find you out. But you could come to him wholeheartedly and say, I will give myself to you. Pay homage to the king. Love him forevermore. And he will save you. He will preserve your life. And that is, and he will be your king forever. And that is true salvation in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story of the kingdom which provides for us so many patterns and pictures, uh, typological patterns of the kingdom of God that help us to understand our own situation. We pray that as we go through these days, these weeks of studying one kings, you'd help us to see more clearly the truth about the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would enable us to come to him in Jesus' name. Amen.